to another episode of Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM, people-powered radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, for the next half hour, and this week's episode is entitled Escape to the Seaside. Regular listeners... Regular Sacred Cinema listeners would know that we have hovered around this topic for many, many weeks. I don't know what's in the air at the moment, uh, but there have been so many films, uh, not only that have come out in the cinema recently, but just films that we've done on the show, um, old movies, newish movies that are, are based around people going to the sea or living in a seaside town, the seaside having some kind of symbolic value to it. Um, most recently, in terms of just movies that have come out of the cinema, recently did After Sun on the show. We've done Empire of Light on the show. There's been plenty of others as well that have been hovering in this. Um, for the French Film Festival here going on in Australia right now, um, I just saw a film uh, called Two Tickets to Greece, which is about uh, two lovely middle-aged ladies taking a trip off to Greece. And I realised that it's it's something specifically, I mean, particularly in the European psyche, but also here in Australia. You know, we... You know, if you're from Canberra, you'd might truck off down to Taladala or Batemans or something like that. Or if you're, I mean, if you live in Sydney or Melbourne or Brisbane or whatever, you kind of live on the sea. But people go up to Bali and things like that. You know, people in America head off to the seaside or they have lake houses or they go down to Mexico or something. It is sort of like a human universal experience. It's sort of when when the when the when it gets hot, when summer comes round, to off, off you go to the seaside. And I want to talk about sort of what the some the symbolic nature of all that and what it sort of might indicate about the human experience. Um, But there's so much to cover this week. There are so many films we could have done. Uh, The more I started thinking about it, the more... And I I feel really bad about not talking about certain ones. But the first one I'm going to talk about is this new film, Two Tickets to Greece, uh, directed by Marc Fatoussi. We're then going to, of course, talk about the Pierre Pierre Le Fou uh, from 1965, directed by Jean-Luc Godard. And then we're going to finish off with The Green Ray from 1986, directed by... Maybe uh, maybe the guy that's been on Sacred Cinema the most, uh, Mr. Eric Roma. But let's kick things off now with Mark Fatusi's film from last year, Two Tickets to Greece. So we're not going to talk about this one for too long just because I think like there's a sort of simplicity, a beautiful simplicity to this film that we're going to sort of tap into and then we're going to like use it as the, the baseline for the rest of today's show. But basically the main character is a lady in her 50s or 60s, single mother. Um, her husband is divorced, so he's not with a younger woman. Uh, you can very much relate to a lot of these characters and see people you know in these characters and she's, you know, a very disciplined and proper and has a very structured and, dare I say, boring kind of existence. You know, wears a lot of cardigans and is like very cynical and not fussy and and basically, her young son, uh, he's like, "Oh, mom, you got to get out there. You got to, you know, get back into life." Uh, he tees up a holiday with her old high school friend, um, Magali, who's played by Laura Kalmy, who we would know from when we did full time um, many, many, many months ago. And she's kind of this typically fun-loving, you know, still remembers the, you know, being a kid in the 1980s and. They go back, and then she, you know, one, you know, Blondine's the one that has all the itinerary and all the the books and has everything figured out, and and Magali's the one who sort of doesn't have any bags and you know kisses lots of guys and loves dancing and partying, and and obviously we see that Blondine learns that in order to become a more whole person and to you know to get in touch with you know her truest self she needs to embrace her wilder side, and we could very easily read this film where Magali is kind of Blondine's like inner. 
uh, inner wild child, let's say. Uh, she's like her, she's sort of sort of the symbol of openness and, and craziness. And, and, and by embracing her, uh, it's symbol, symbolic of Blondine embracing that that youthful um, side of her that, that that enjoys life and love and, and exciting things. Uh, so I guess in a, in the most basic sense, it's a story of self self discovery where Blondine learns to sort of leave her her sort of safety first self. Uh, behind and embrace living a sort of a carefree lifestyle. Um, and so we sort of see the seaside or at least holidays themselves or vacations as sort of like a, a symbol a symbol of leaving home. And when we're talking about leaving home, we're sort of talking about leaving the familiar, leaving the habitual, not just in the sense of, you know, your local shopping centre and your house, but like leaving the familiar version of yourself, um, leaving the habitual trait, you know, the, the, the your traits and attributes that are habitual, um, spicing things up and not caring. You could put it in a, in a very general sense about liberating oneself from the normal self. And and we're going to sort of tap into the distinction between those two versions of the self uh, in, a, in a moment. But probably most importantly, and, and, and it sort of follows quite naturally, but if, if a person sort of departs from themselves, if they kind of live outside of themselves, it, it kind of naturally follows that, you know, if you're living outside your own head, you're kind of you're 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 kind of living in someone else's head. It means you've got more of an openness to caring about other people. And you could I'm not going to push it too far, but you could sort of say that like one of these characters is like the right wing character, and one's like the left wing character. And so one is sort of this this Ayn Randian kind of self interested. You know, life is about making sure that you take care of your own lot, and, and you, you make sure that you're very responsible and you're looking after yourself. But the the flaw of that is that you may be a little bit less empathetic. But then on the left wing side of things, you know, if you're always interested in making friends and having a good time, you have an openness that that's really good because it means you're very empathetic and you're aware of what's going on all the, all the time but you may be not looking after yourself or not enough and you're actually relying on other people to take care of you and you could say there's you know there's a balance i mean how many films do i have to go through where you have you know these two sides it's this dualistic thing going on you know we've talked about this a lot of times on the show but that that's kind of the the, the point i think by orienting the film and, and basing it around blondine specifically we can sort of say that for people like that who are a little bit too um, stuck in their own habits. Um, when we when we leave the self, when we go on holiday, when we go to the seaside, uh, we it does it sort of teaches us how to maybe live in someone else's shoes, and that's kind of like the big takeaway for her if you if you go up and watch the film. But what happens if we sort of push this to extreme? This idea of liberating the self, we push it to the extreme. Well, at this point, let's move on to our second film for today's discussions. But before we do, just remind you, are uh, listening to Two Double X ninety eight point three FM People Powered Radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, for the remainder of this half hour slot. Be sure to stay tuned for more quality radio programming here on 2XX or consider jumping onto the, our website to consider subscribing to the station or sponsoring our show or any of 2XX's wonderful programs. But moving on to our second film now, Pierrot Le Fou from 1965 by Jean-Luc Godard. I mean, we've talked about a lot of Godard's films on this show, as we should. Very, very famous uh, French New Wave director. Um, basically, this film centers on the characters of Ferdinand and Marianne, and you could kind of say that. I mean, all of these films are kind of about like a person and then like their counterpart kind of thing, and you could similarly say that Marianne is sort of like the symbol of um, Ferdinand's liberation in this film. We're going to talk about that in a little bit more detail in a second, but basically, he's a guy that lives in Paris. Um, he's sick of the I guess the snootiness of the bourgeois Paris elite and he decides to throw it all away and just get in the car and drive south and head off to the coast uh, and in typical Goddard fashion it's all very unstructured and I'm going to be honest you're not really <laughs> you're not necessarily sure what's going on in this film but that's kind of the point in a way um 
Let, let's put it simply. It's kind of a tale about seeking liberty. When they're driving out of Paris, they go past this little the little Statue of Liberty there on the on the on the Seine. I'm pretty sure it's on the Seine. And there's a, a quote which is, oh, "And the Statue of Liberty waved to two of her children," which is you know these two sort of Bonnie and Clyde types driving around. I mean, this film could go with so many other films in terms of the its imagery of two tearaways running away in, in a car and. Yeah, we're not, we're, there's so much to get in. When I write notes for these films, they very rarely fill up, fill up a full A3 page. This week, it's 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 too much. But let's, well, I've tried to hone in on the main specific aspects I want to focus in on. But basically, um, I don't think it's just a film about the liberation of the individual. It's kind of almost like the not the contrary, but but um, it, it's really about. I think it's really about liberty in general. Or, or, or liberty for people in general. Um, it's 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 sort of a, a film about life uh, itself, or you know, uh, liberty itself, um, which the film sort of conspicuously implies because Ferdinand's writing a book and he talks about how he wants to write a book about life itself, and you can kind of tell that there's a and there's a lot of authorial intrusion in the film, and they're breaking the fourth wall all the time. So like Goddard is Ferdinand and blah blah blah. But basically, I think the film is really about the concept of liberty. Um, and and part of why I think it's that as well is because there's these references to um, uh, Velasquez, uh, the painter, and how he, um, you know, there's a quote about uh, how after he was uh, turned 50, he was no longer, he no longer painted objects or specific specific people and objects. He more he painted more painted like 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 atmosphere, like like air and twilight and and shadow, like like the the, the grand collage of of the world rather than singers. We, we kind of talked about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago um, where we were talking about um, different... Like, we're, not many, we're talking about um, compartmentalising and theories around containment and, and physical theories about containment and the world, the universe being many little objects versus one big sort of... You know, one sort of big singular image that's full of swirling little just fluid... I don't want to go too bogged down to that, but I kind of think that's the feel of this film because it's ultimately conveying extreme liberty. Um, and, and obviously there's like little backfirings for the for the characters, it's, but it's not like a simple cautionary tale where it's like, be careful what you wish for. It's, I think it's really like the film itself, um, we experience liberty by watching the film. We sort of indulge in extreme liberty in watching the film. Um, we experience feeling liberated vicariously through the characters. Um, and in classic Goddard, oily Goddard fashion, you know, uh, you've got um, <laughs> you've got Mr. Belmondo there sort of breaking laws flagrantly and then crashing his car and running around and killing people as if it doesn't mean anything. Um, but there's also scenes where, you know, Ferdinand and Mariana on uh, an island catching fish um, and, you know, he, he's sort of an artist and he's writing, you know, stories and things like like we in in viewing the characters we're seeing you know what what we would potentially what we would imagine what we would do if we lived without limits we lived outside of the law uh, and we and we and we lived um sort of as if rules didn't apply and, and sort of in talking about how the film is sort of a depiction of liberty uh, the film itself embodies um pure liberated filmmaking because the film is constantly breaking rules and i mean goddard is the king of breaking rules in cinema so when you're watching it you're not even sure what you're watching and, and then the experience itself is a is a, a experience of breaking rules and and, and having the feelings and, and and almost like the frustrations of having to deal with like not necessarily knowing where the story's at or where it's going and that sort of thing 
And so in a similar way we talked about with two tickets to, to Greece, um, you know, Mark, in the same way that we said that uh, uh, Laura Cullamy's uh, character in Two Tickets to Greece is sort of a symbol of Blonde, um, Blondine's liberation, Malian is sort of like the symbol of Ferdinand's liberation. Um, and we get this really interesting thing happening in the film where she keeps calling him um, Pierrot, which in English is is, is Pete, but in, apparently in French, I don't speak French, but apparently Pierrot is like a... It's like a nickname for like a sad clown. Um, and so she keeps calling that and he always responds by the end of the film. You kind of do it before he even does it where he says, my name isn't Pierrot, it's, it's Ferdinand. And um, it, uh, this is what I was talking about before. We're talking about the, sort of the, the distinction between the liberated self and the actual self or the, the self that lives out our desires and the actual self. So when he's in this state of escape and, and driving around and, and, and breaking all the rules, that's when she's calling him Pierrot. And um, hence the name, by the way, Pierre or Lefou, it means crazy Pete. And it's sort of her saying, ah, this is that. You could say that this is her sort of saying, ah, here he is, that liberated version of of Ferdinand. And in talking about sort of this distinction between the, 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 the side of us that does live out our desires and lives a liberated version of life, there's this interesting line where he says, when he's talking to her because they're in love, he says um, something like, I'm, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he says, I'm glad I don't like spinach because if I did, I would eat it all the time, which is which implies that that wouldn't be a good thing because he doesn't like it, which is obviously a paradox. It's a, it's a, it's a contradiction. And then he says, but I feel, I feel the, op- I feel that way. I feel the opposite about you, which sort of implies like, I'm glad I love you because if I didn't, I would never see you. And that wouldn't be good because I love you. And if you love someone, you want to see them. So it, you know, it's, 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 it's a silly joke, but it's this idea of like, and you can probably, you can see it in your own life that, you know, that maybe you're someone that doesn't like spinach, but you're like, oh, wouldn't it be horrible to have to eat all spinach? Because I don't like spinach, but if you did like it, you would want to eat it. But if you, if you think, especially with things like food, it actually works really well. Like I love chocolate and there's a version of myself that I can imagine just eating chocolate all the time. And I, and I kind of want, like that, that person exists in my head. Like it's, there's an identity there. It's like the trace of an identity. Like I can see that that person does have, um, you know, the, the concept of that person exists. I can, I can hypothesize what that person would do. They do sort of exist in a, in a conceptual abstract sense, but they're not me. They're not who I am. But as someone that probably wants to live a life where I do as much as I, I can to enjoy my life. It's interesting that I'm not that person, right? And you can see that about your own life. I'm sure there's plenty of things that you desire to do that you wish you could do. And it's, it's, it's a sort of very Foucaultian idea, right? This distinction between the actual self and the self that lives out all of our desires. Um, that sort of, it's almost like the goal of human governance or the goal of humanity should be to ensure that we can do or live out as many desires as possible, that we shouldn't have constraints on all the things that that, des- that, that desiring version, the person that, or not the desiring person, but the person that lives out all these desires, that we, we actually want to merge those two things or at least we want to become as much that person as we possibly can. I think this film kind of plays that out a little bit, right? Um, and in talking about that, let's talk about how the film sort of depicts this liberated self or the, the, the concept of pure or extreme or absolute liberty. And, 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 and in sort of breaking that down, I mean, this is, this is a, f- a French film from the 1960s. So it is not a film that we can put to words. Like it doesn't exist in that sense, but let's try our best. I'd like to, I think we could sort of convey this film as like the, the, the nexus of clownishness, <laughs> And the sea. And I'll explain what I mean by that. So P- 
Pete or, or, or um, Ferdinand Perel uh, is a very clownish guy. And we talk about when I mean the word when I use the word clownish, I mean someone who's who's you know there's there's elements of lunacy, craziness, chaoticness. Um, uh, and, and specifically, you know, there's, a, there's actually a, a scene where he talks about how uh, Marianne only has feelings and not ideas. And there's that, you know, there's that famous idea we've talked about on the show before. It's like someone who constantly feels is is always sad, but someone who constantly thinks is 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 always laughing. And like the idea of the tragic clown, and you know, <coughs> and him being a sad clown. I think it is sort of playing to that idea of like. Um, you know that 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 that, that distinction between um, you know accepting the world as cha- you know like 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 the Joker that idea of like accepting the world as chaotic and nihilistic is kind of funny if you think about it but it is tragic if you feel about that if it, if you th- you know if you if you observe and and, and um, think about how you know chaos can destroy people's lives and things like that but anyway I, I want to talk about how the film sort of depicts this 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 concept of clownishness so the form of the film itself is chaotic right in its structure and its dialogue and pure characterizations um we, we've already talked about how he's called crazy pete but also the use of color and this is something that we really should have talked about at the start when we talk about this film but this is one of the most important aspects of this film is its use of primary color specifically and how it's referencing pop art which was prominent at the time and it's specifically when you compare this to like a film like breathless or a lot of other goddard's early films particularly those in black and white which aren't particularly colorful but there's a, there's a metaphor it uses it in a metaphorical sense so at the beginning of the film when it's in paris and it's supposed to be depicting um, sort of the, the the one dimensionality of parisians who claim to be sort of at the forefront of culture and things like that um, i think goddard is kind of getting this point that like sort of Having too many rules about, you know, what is good and quality and, um, you know, what ought to be seen as elite and not elite, that sort of begets conformity and a kind of sort of fake intellect. So he has these shots of Parisians talking at a party uh, and it's all just like block primary colours and he's kind of trying to say to them like, you know, sitting around drinking champagne and, and giving the same trite and... Um, you know, um, what's that? What's that word when something's like the same derivative um, sort of takes on things? is It's very simplistic. It's very stupid. But and I'm not sure Goddard's trying to say this, but ironically, you could say the film itself could actually be accused of reducing itself to simplicity in the sense that um, not only by using those single colors and a bit what we talked about last week with um, with um, to Leslie, how like in using like pop culture or using like low art techniques it in itself becomes low art by doing that like you could sort of say that about this film that because it like satirizes these things it actually becomes those things um but also like it's abandonment of rules and i and this is where i kind of think he is actually trying to do this on purpose but it's abandonment of rules is in and of itself an act of simplicity right uh, and Godhart himself actually is sort of like very typically Parisian as well. Like if you had to think of like a Parisian director, you would think of him. But what I'm talking about, it's like this, this, the, the, a complete and utter abandonment and, and uh, de- de- demolition of rules and, and virtuosity. Um, and if you know Goddard's story, he is sort of a guy that sort of just made it himself in a way. I mean, he had connections with elites and things, the cultural elites, but he also, you know, he'd made, you know, made breathless with a documentary film character, a ca- camera. Um, that in itself, like, becomes so quirky and absurd that the absurdity itself is kind of one-dimensional and simplistic. Um, and so when we're talking about the colour scheme of this film, 
And it's a depiction of, of Paris as sort of having this kind of like um, red, yellow, blue. Uh, it, that in itself is a bit circus-like, right, that, that, that image. And it's sort of we get to this point where, where Paris is kind of circus-like. In its, in its, it is the real sort of crazy place in, in its sort of absurdity. But then obviously them driving around in a car and escaping from that is chaotic in a different kind of way. But then there's a sort of horseshoe effect. And if you've seen the end of this film, you know what I mean, that you know, Ferdinand actually sort of becomes a mono-coloured clown of sorts. If you've seen the poster of the film, you know what I'm talking about. And this is where I bring this is where I bring in sort of the nexus of the clownishness with this concept of the sea. And we've talked about the the, the symbolic nature of the sea before. We did a whole episode on the deep blue sea, and then we, in fact, we actually talked about the big blue, the Luc Besson film, which is mentioned a lot in To Diggers to Greece. Um, but it's basically, the, the sea is very often a symbol of the abyss the infinite, the eternal. It's actually referred to that way in, in Pierre Lefou. And so again, we see this use of colour uh, by the end of this film, specifically the colour blue, um, as this kind of absolute blue, you know, the, the deep blue sea. This, this is the abs, you know, we're absolutely, we're, we're deep in the realm of the eternal, uh, the sense of the absolute, the sense of the infinite, the sense of the abyss. So when we combine those things, I'm not really sure how to put it to words, but it's it's kind of like absolute liberation, be it as an individual, as an artist, or in just in general. Um, to be absolutely liberated is sort of to be fully immersed in the infinite, um, it's kind of like a destructive, a way to self-destruct in a way, to become part of the abyss, to obliterate oneself into into smithereens, right? Which is something that we kind of would instantly regret, isn't it? Even if we are fully rejecting sort of conformity and civilization in, in all of its staleness, to fully negate that, to fully liberate oneself from that does sort of require us to sort of flatten ourselves out into this, this, into this state of obliteration. So... Is that where we should end it, that, that, that to travel to the seaside to liberate oneself is really an act of suicide? Well, let's finish things off now with Eric Roma's film from 1986, The Green Ray. And this one centres on the character of Delphine, who is sort of like your typical lonely single lady in her 30s. And the film is really interesting how, especially to talk about this, when we ha- if we're talking about films about escaping to the seaside, we have to do an Eric Roma film because that's like all of his, half of his films are about people going off to the Riviera or something. But basically there's another one of his films where this person has sort of escapes to the seaside. And there's lots of conversations in this film specifically about going to the seaside at the sun, in the summertime. And there are characters who are like, oh, what are you doing for the summer? Or you can't just stay in Paris for the summer, right? It definitely makes it a routine thing. And in this fact, there's a really interesting scene where Delphine is in Paris for the summer and there's these like close-up shots of like the disgusting like gunk in the in the Seine and and all the people that are that are um, bathing sunbathing there and how disgusting it is so it's it's the escaping to the seaside is sort of not only symbolic of the demands of human conventions right like we have to es- we have to escape Paris because of all those things we talked about with Pierre Le Fou and how it's you know it's conformist and it's it's suffocating but, but also in it being a convention to escape to the seaside, it, that does sort of indicate that it's something that is probably quite important or something that's useful, something that human beings should do. You know, like if everyone's doing something, it's probably something to, you know, it's probably something that you should do or at least consider doing. So does this imply that our problems can be solved by a good getaway? Um, is the seaside ultimately the, 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 the key to our liberation? And in, in sort of viewing, in talking about the sea as this means of going to the seaside as a means of liberation as we sort of did previously with Pierre Le Fou, I actually think there's some kind of like, 
interesting nods to, even though there's nothing on the internet that says that that's the case. That I mean, there's a character in the Green Ray called Pierre, and and they talk about him being like a sad clown or something like they 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 mention the the, the significance of that name. And there's also references to Jules Verne in both films, but probably a little bit more in the Green Ray. We're going to hit on hint, talk about that a little bit more in just a second, but. In depicting, you know, Paris is a bad place to be in summer and the importance of going to the seaside in the summer, we do learn in this film that it's not the place but the person, let's say, that that's the key to liberation. So um, Delphine swings from sea to snow and back again. Uh, and also she has friends that are happy to go to Ireland of all places in the summer, which is famously very rainy, which is the opposite of a sunny seaside town. Uh, so we, Delphine very quickly realises that, you know, it doesn't matter where she goes, she's very clearly the problem. Other people are, are happily going to a rainy old island, uh, rainy old island, and they're still having a good time. She can, she goes to this, the French Alps, she goes to Biarritz, no matter where she goes, she's still unhappy, she's still single and, and lonely. Um, and so, um, so, so she's sort of driven to escape to the seaside because that's, what, that's the convention. And we've talked about how the seaside is this sort of, this, this abyss. It's kind of like the, the, you know, the, the, this infinite, limitless place that we can go. So the ends of the earth, let's kind of say. Um, but but we, we clearly get to this point, but it's, it's not the only thing we need. So, so what else do we need? How can we get to a, a, point, of, uh, a point of conclusion today? Well, we've got to talk about the title of the film, The Green Ray, which if you don't know what it is, it, it's when the sun sets on the horizon and at the very end you get this little flash of green. And, it, and it, I mean, it's important to note that it occurs at the horizon. So we're talking about being at the end of the end, the absolute infinite, right, geographically speaking, but also philosophically. And they, in the film, they talk about how in the, in the book, the story, The Green Ray by Jules Verne, um, that when one sees a rare green flash at sunset, one's own thoughts and those of others are revealed as if by magic. So there's sort of this idea that... The, the, the most extreme way to escape the traps of society and monotony and conformity is not necessarily to go to the beach and relax and sit on a towel and, and look beautiful and, and gorgeous and everything, but, and, and to, to turn off the mind, let's say. But it's kind of like to know our own thoughts. Like we, we go to the abyss, we go to the infinite to kind of lock into our own thoughts, but also more importantly, the thoughts of others, to be in the heads of other people. It's kind of this sort of like transcendent, our transcendental sense of awareness, which is a little bit familiar to something that we mentioned not that long ago. So let's sort of rope everything together now, right? It's important to escape to the seaside, isn't it? To just sort of witness and embrace the eternal, to get out of the familiar, to get out of the habitual. Not don't get stuck in a rut in the in the in the apartment, you know, in your Paris apartment. It's good to get out there, get for a swim, and and connect with the infinite. But you know, this, this sort of complete obliteration of the self, of society, of rules, um, is in and of itself sort of a means of, of manifesting kind of like a pure simplicity, the kind of simplicity that perhaps we were trying to avoid in the first place, this, this pure sense of the abyss, um, a, a deep sort of depressing uniform image, thinking that there's nothing else, that this is all that life can do for us. And, 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 and sort of if we do get to that place of, 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 of pure obliteration, pure absolute nothingness, that is sort of instantaneously, and it's almost in like in a comical way, uh, something that we tragically regret almost straight away as soon as we're confronted with that, that, that sense of, you know, the nihilistic eternal realm, right? So perhaps the key is to find some balance there, let's say, or, the, or at least to know the purpose of why we're chasing the abyss, why we chase 
um, that, 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 that limitless horizon that, that the seaside that shows to us, right? It's important that we sort of like can identify or capture the, you know, the singular best offer that the seaside can give us. And, and I think when we look at a film like The Green Ray, we're perhaps reminded of something that we said at the very start of today's conversation, which is that when we escape to the seaside, we're sort of given this ability to escape the self and see things from the other side. Well, unfortunately, that's all we've got time for this week on Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM, People Powered Radio. Stay tuned for more quality radio programming here on People Powered Radio. Uh, also, jump onto our website to consider sponsoring this show or any of our shows or subscribing to the station. That would be great. But until next time, uh, thanks so much for tuning in. We'll see you again next week. Have a lovely week and uh, all the best. 